Good morning. Thank you again for the privilege of getting to open the Word of God with you uh, over the summer and now into the fall as John has been on sabbatical. Uh, it has been a privilege to see your congregation. I think I may have mentioned it to y'all before. I noticed some of you, but to see y'all love one another well. I love seeing everyone around afterwards enjoying fellowship. It's a beautiful and good thing and I uh, would love to see more churches with that similar love for one another. Well, during this time that John's been away, I've had the opportunity to go through the book of 1 John. We started in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. We talked about the joy of knowing the weighty God, uh, which then led 1 John chapter 2, verses 18, chapter 3, verse 3, which asked that question, what thrills our soul? You know, what's going to get us out of bed early on a Saturday morning? Because when the joy of knowing the weighty God thrills our soul, it produces a hope a joy, and a comfort that our hearts are clamoring for this side of heaven. Last month, we looked at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4, going through chapter 4, verse 6, underscoring the necessity and the beauty of practice as a result of being thrilled and enamored with the weighty God. So this morning, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. If you have your Bibles, you can begin turning there. But it covers kind of one of the main cruxes that John has in view here. And we've quoted before New Testament theologian Donald Guffrey says this, nowhere else in the New Testament is the combination of faith and love so clearly brought out. And it seems probable that this is emphasized because the behavior of the readers leaves much to be desired. And as the readers, it leaves us with that question, as our head knowledge with all of this incredible, incredible Presbyterian theology Has it made its way to our heart? Or we said the other way of asking it, has it made our capacity to love others larger or smaller? Because John's encouraging us to let the work of Christ change us. Let sanctification do what it was meant to do. And one of the things that's interesting is you have the opportunity to open the Word of God in different settings. I've had the opportunity to teach at RUF. We're going through the book of Ephesians right now. And I also have an old student who I get with on a weekly basis over the phone, and we go through different books of the Bible. We happen to be going through Revelation right now. And if some of you may remember, Revelation doesn't start off with all the other, like, whoa, Revelation. It starts off with seven letters to the churches. And you might remember the first letter is actually written to Ephesus. John lives in Ephesus, is a member of this church. John writes Revelation. Paul writing the book of Ephesians. And one of the things that, that, that passes, some of us are familiar with chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved, this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Well, John says this in Revelation 2, starting in verse 2 through verse 5. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What he's saying is you have my hate. You hate the right things, but you don't have my love. In John's brief book here in 1 John, written as a resident of Ephesus, member of that church, 
points out a number of things, but it continually calls the Christian to love as Christ loved us. And John's kind enough to remind us we can't love one another well of our own accord, but as we dwell on God's great love for us, and as God's love begins to abide in us, a love that is never stopping, never giving up, never ending, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. That is what he is saying will enable us to lay down our lives in love for those that God places around us. And that's when incredible starts to happen. So let us stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter four, verses seven through 21. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not, sh- does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us sing. Well, the first thing that we see from this passage is overwhelmed by a relentless God. God's love revealed in Jesus. We see this in verses 9 and 10. And as we just read, that's a lot of love in one passage. Uh, Almost 25 times John mentions love in just this short section of its book. And since it's mentioned so often, there's a couple different ways we can look at it. And one of the ways which is helpful is what we don't mean when we say God is love. We don't mean that God's love exists solely just to make us happy or to do what I think is best for me. We don't think God's love is just saying, hey, be nice to one another. That's all it is. And it's not God loves me. So he's just going to let me and everyone else just chart their own course. What John is doing in this passage, he's given us a clear definition about God's love. And it's far better than anyone could imagine. And it's certainly better than God just wants to make me happy. So what we do mean when we say God is love. Love is from God like heat is from fire. 
like light is from the sun. It is woven into who he is. Sun gives light because it is light. Fire gives heat because it is heat. This love becomes a part of the Christian. It's woven into their nature because it comes from God, not because they have it in of themselves. This love we share is an extension from the one who gave it. And verse 10 is really helpful here as we define God's love. Catch the position of God and man in this first part of verse 10, where it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Notice that it begins with God and not with man. We have to begin with God and not man, or we're not going to change. And one of the ways we can kind of gauge this truth is how do we approach scripture? How do we approach worship? How do we approach sermons? How do we reach maybe other theological books we read? Is our first instinct, what does this teach me about me? Or is our first instinct, what does this teach me about God? And then me. Because love doesn't originate in us. We can't walk away from here this morning and say, hey, I'm going to be more loving. I'm just going to do it. I'm a good person. It is God's nature, love, that has to be woven into our lives for change to happen and for us to truly have the ability to love. And I love verse 10 because short little verse, it packs a powerful punch. It's telling us it begins with God and not man. Then it goes on to say, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love that word, propitiation. It sticks out. It's fun to say. Youth ministry days, it would be one of those words that would catch junior high and high school students' attention. If we asked them what it meant, very rarely did any of them know what it meant. So we'd give them the technical definition. He came to bear our punishment for sin and thus be the one who removes the wrath of God from us. And then we'd give them the example. We said, we need to think of God's wrath coming at us like a tsunami. And we would tell those guys, we said, we know you've been lifting weights all summer. We know you're the first guy to hop off the bus at the beach and take your shirt off because you want to show everyone what you've been working on all summer. But I don't care what you bench. I don't care what you press. I don't care how many guys you can knock back. That tsunami's coming at you. It's knocking you flat. And that is us. The wrath of God is coming at us like a tsunami. And there is nothing we can do to stop it. But God sent his son to turn the wrath away. And not only turn it away, but to take the wrath for us. Or if we want to think of it as another example in more adult terms. Back in 2008, there was a word that had become very common. And some are afraid it may become a little bit more common again. And it was that word foreclosure. Your foreclosure is when the bank says, hey, since you can no longer make payments on your home, we're taking it back. So if we can put ourselves in that position where our home, for the last year, we have not been able to make payments on our home. And it's been mailing after mailing, email after email, phone call after phone call. When are you going to make your next payment? When are you going to make your next payment? When are you going to make your payment? And then all of the sudden, we get a phone call from the bank And instead of them demanding money, they say, your note's been paid. And in fact, your note has been paid by us. 
And as a husband and wife's jaw comes off the floor or as they're waking up from passing out, it's thinking, what? You're the one who was demanding payment and now you're the one who's paid it. That's what God has done for us and far more. He demanded the payment for our sins and he paid it in Jesus Christ. And one of the things in the nature of my work now, I get to work with a lot of different banks and lenders. And one of the things I can tell you, I've never heard of any of them paying off someone's note that was behind. Maybe it's happened. So we could say love and a lender is very dependent upon how much you're willing to pay that loan back. One of the things with God, his nature, it actually makes sense that he would pay this. Because what John is saying, God is love. And as you see that he is love in a manner that's far different what this world might say, it's going to change us. And as we fathom the radical nature of God's love, it will dramatically alter us as his love is woven into our lives. Which leads to our second point. When we're overwhelmed by a relentless God, it leads to loving difficult people. You see that in verses 11 and 12. I can remember my first month in youth ministry in Jackson. We had a youth house where on Wednesday nights the youth would come down. We would hang out. And there were some couches in this portion of the youth house. And one of the students who was sitting by himself was just kind of over there. So I went over there to introduce myself. He said, hi, my name is Justin. No handshake. And at that time, since it was a long time ago, it was an iPod, not an iPhone. Proceeds to put the headphones in his ears and then look down. And I was like, all right, welcome to youth ministry. Um, There are folks like that. And obviously, as we all know, and we may be that individual who's really difficult to love. There are folks that are really, really hard to love. But the thing is, is we can't walk away from a passage like this that is talking about love almost 25 times and say, you know what? This only applies to those people who are really easy to love. No, it's applying to those who are really difficult to love. And the truth is, a lot of us sometimes can be like the child who's whining Do I really have to do my chores? Do I really have to do my homework? Because the truth is, we love ourselves a lot. So what we look to do is we look to our needs, our desires, before we think about others. The other thing that we have to remember, we have an enemy, Satan. And he wants to make sure that we love ourselves a lot. And he wants to bring up every possible thing that someone could have done to make us hate them or just not want to love them. Whether it's the nutty neighbor who's just crazy and you're thinking, hey, really, do I have to love that guy? Or we're thinking, hey, that person is just incredibly annoying. The moment they start talking, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard going down. I can't take it. Or if I just look at that person, I want to vomit. Or if you hit the hallways of a junior high or high school and you have girls who are like, no, she didn't just wear the same thing as me. Or no, she didn't just post that. No way I'm going to be nice to her. Or this person won't return any of my calls, any of my emails, any of my texts. I'm trying and trying and trying. And they just won't respond. Surely I don't have to love that person. Or that person has made my life miserable. And not only miserable for a week, but they've made it miserable for months and months and months. So if a little harm comes their way, 
That's not going to bother me. Our list of excuses to not love others can be really long. And a lot of times they can be very legitimate reasons for not loving others. But what John has been doing throughout this book and even in this passage, he's saying, look, look to your father. His list of reasons, his excuses not to love us is infinitely longer than our excuses and our reasons to not love difficult people. And that's the motivation. That's the drive. If he can love me, then he can help me love those that are difficult to love in my life. So as it goes for Christians, loving others and loving difficult others is not an option. It's not an accessory that we get to click and say, "Mm, not going to add that accessory to Christianity. No, it's a requirement as Christians. And the crazy thing with this requirement, it's actually going to bring greater joy in the long run as God weaves into us, perfects his love in us. That leads us to the third thing. We see verses 13 through 19. When we are overwhelmed by a relentless God, It leads to loving others relentlessly. Some of us may be familiar with Jesus' commandment from Matthew 22, 37, and 38. And again, you got to love the things that the authors of Scripture put in there sometimes. You may be familiar with that passage, but are you familiar with who asked Jesus the question? What's the greatest commandment? It was a lawyer. Don't you love that? The author was saying, yeah, that would be the lawyer who would ask that question. What's the greatest commandment? Thinking, hey, I got him. And then how does Jesus respond? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. After Jesus says those words, we don't have a response of what the lawyer thought or said. We can only assume that maybe he was left speechless like lawyers rarely are. But the bigger point, Jesus is saying, love me, love others. Those are the two most important things. The rest of it depends on that. So Jesus' response, adding further fuel to the fire to love others. So if it is to love others, we have to ask the question, is it easier to build people up? Is it easier to love others? Or is it easier to tear them down? And again, we can look to culture for this. If we go and watch CNN or Fox News, are most of those companies built on the premises We're going to look for every way possible to build up mankind. They are looking for every controversy, every story that can throw dirt or shade on someone else because they know our hearts. Those are the stories we crave more than the ones that build up. Or if we look to like, hey, I'm going to go to something that's a little happier than the political world. I'm going to go to the sports world. You look at TV shows and it's, hey, who's on the hot seat? Wouldn't that be great if for us, if our jobs were talked about like that? Hey, how many weeks until he gets fired? I mean, 
That's what people's reality is, is because they're talking about how bad this person is at their job. Or there's TMZ, which follows celebrities. And are they following celebrities so they can see all the good things they're doing? No. What have they done wrong? Where have they messed up? And then again, going back, if we remember when we were, or if you're currently in there, the junior high and high school hallways can be a very mean place. We are prone to tear others down. We have to see that within ourselves. And one of the ways in which I love how I love music, and sometimes I love the lyrics that come with music. And there's an artist, some of you may have heard of her, she's done pretty well, Taylor Swift. Um, just had a tour, made a little bit of money, hopes you can scrape by. But she had a song come out in 2022, Antihero. And I love what it says. Did you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise as altruism. Like some kind of congressman. Tale as old as time. And she says this, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I'm the problem. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. How refreshing is that? Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. Loving others in a relentless manner begins by saying, I'm the problem before you're the problem. That's one of the things that God was getting at in that letter to Ephesus. There's a lot of things you hate and you should hate. But you see that the problem's out there instead of the problems in here. And as we start to deal with the problem that's in here, that's when we start to see change happen in an incredible way. Because God starts to change this heart and it affects others. We never excuse the sinful behavior of others, but the light must shine brighter on ourselves so we see our own sinful condition and that that would compel us to love others as we realize how incredible it is that God's loved us. The other thing about loving others in a relentless manner, it's going to be costly. And sometimes it's going to be more costly than we want it to be. And it's the love of our Heavenly Father that reminds us of this truth of how personally costly it can be. God the Father turned his back, turned his back on his son to appease his own wrath toward us. That's the definition of painful and costly. So for us, sometimes it's going to cost us with our time. Maybe as we go and serve somewhere. And one of the bigger ways that I think it can do is as we listen to others. Scripture talks about slow to speak, quick to listen. I'm usually very quick to speak and slow to listen. Because when we actively listen to others, we're letting them know, I love you. I care about you. It's about more than just me. And then it's admitting. One of the things is admitting our own sin and admitting our own failure when we need to confess and when we need to repent. And that's so hard. Because some of us are really good at it. Some of us are really good. Others of us, we hate admitting that we've fallen short. But scripture tells us we've fallen short. 
And that's okay because of Jesus. So knowing that it's going to be costly at times as we love others and sometimes more than we want it to be. But there's a lot of ways in which we could mention specifically how to love others. But there are a few ways in which as we start to love others in a relentless manner, we can tell as we start to abide in Christ that it leads us into what our fourth point talks about. When we're overwhelmed by our relentless God, it leads us, yes, to loving difficult people, yes, to loving others relentlessly. But what it does is it leads to a changed community. Um, I think it was 17 years ago, there was a guy who stepped up on stage in his blue jeans and his mock black turtleneck. Some of you may know who I'm referring to. Steve Jobs. And he said this back in 2007. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. It's a bold claim. And there's probably a lot of people that have made claims similar to that. Was it pretty true? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. We go anywhere around town. We go to a restaurant. We go to a ball game. We're all staring at rectangles. If you think about that, he said that. He was bold enough to say that. And not only do we have to go around just this town, but since the iPhone's launch, as of last month, over 1.9 billion iPhones have been sold. What John's doing for us in this passage is he's saying, if we love in this manner that he's talking about, it's going to change the communities around us. It's going to change those around us because we do become that fragrant aroma that others are wondering, why are they loving me? Why are they kind to me? Why are they gracious to me? And what we're praying and hoping for is that they see the only reason they are kind and gracious and loving to me is because there is a God who is at work in them, abiding in them and perfecting his love in them so that we can love others. And wouldn't that be a unique community that it's not just based on how I'm feeling today or what others have done for me or how I might benefit from others, but a place where it's you before me where we're willing to relentlessly love others because God has relentlessly loved us it'd be a community where people gave up their time their resources because they want others to be overwhelmed by the relentless God who loved them first so for us in this room have we have we been overwhelmed by the relentless God And if we have, let us pray that God would do a work in our community that others would know this kind of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord God, we thank you that through it, that you guide, you lead, you instruct. But Lord, from the passage this morning, thank you for letting us know how much we are loved in you. And Lord God, the lengths to which you went to appease your own wrath. So that, Lord, we don't know it. Lord God, may we see the manner in which you have loved us. And Lord, may you help us to do what does not come natural. To help us love others in a relentless way. So that as they see and experience that kind of love, it points them to you. 
And we get to sit back and say, look at what God did. Look at what God did. Lord God, thank you for being at work and continuing to be at work in the days and the years ahead. Help us to trust you and to live in your accomplished work for us. In Jesus' name, amen.